Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Vladimir Camaño grew up in an immigrant Dominican family in the Bronx to live out the American comedy dream. Since breaking out as a new face in the 2015 Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal, he has been anointed by Howie Mandel in a televised gala for the CW, co-wrote and starred in an NBC pilot based on his life in comedy with hit producer Bill Lawrence, and been named one of Variety Magazine's top 10 comics to watch in 2016. In 2017, Camaño has performed on Jimmy Kimmel Live in an HBO's first English-speaking comedy showcase for HBO Latino, Entre No Part 2. You're going to be seeing and hearing a lot more from him, so let's get to it! Alright, Vladimir. Hey, Sean. Vlad. Vlad, uh, as my father calls me, Vlad! <laughs> hey, Sean, I gotta say, it's finally good to sit down with you, man. I've known you for a number of years now. I knew you maybe like seven years ago when I did a show with Damien Lemon at the Laugh Lounge. Oh, yeah, the Laugh Lounge. You would come by, you would just, I think you, you would just kind of... Damien asked me to come by, and I yeah. finally like came through. And yeah, it was a, I was surprised because it was a great show, but there were like 10 people And you the were the, one of the few guys that actually had a dedicated... Well, the fir- like, I think you're the first guy to have a... Like at that time for us for comics like a dedicated blog that we can go to and read about from the the minutia of like the smallest show to the biggest like late night set that was going on. Yeah, I've been doing that for the comics comic now for ten years. Yeah. Uh, how long you have you been doing stand-up? This is year ten. Okay, so we've been doing it the same amount. <laughs> We're outliers. <laughs> We're on this journey to get the yeah. ten thousand hours. Yeah, ten thousand hours. We're outliers. Very nice. Well, there's something I w- I want to ask you about first that you mentioned last night. At the screening for HBO Latino, where you said that you specifically wanted to steer away from doing Latino jokes for this Latino showcase, mm-hmm. I I think uh, th- I think the way I phrased it was I specifically wanted to stay away from the stuff that I was known for. Mm-hmm. I'm sim- I'm typically known for my, my father material, my mother material, and I kind of wanted to have a set that I could put online that showcased the other part of me. And I think it was important to do that on a Latino network because I wanted people to see that we're, f- you know, fully flushed out people, even within the, the Latino lens. Right. Like, you know, my set, my set is about having a little bit of money now. And I talk about buying a Dyson vacuum, even though I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have a carpet. Um, and I think that's silly. And I think it represents that, like, yeah, there's a side to me that comes from an immigrant family. And you can catch that stuff at different, par- you know, different sets online. And then here's me talking about... You know, um, going to rich neighborhoods and seeing right. deer and stuff like that. Well, you know, it's it's funny because the last two years for you have been quite the ride. I mean, you you had that classic fantasy play out that people thought never happened anymore, where you you get new faces at Montreal, you get plucked out of that, and then you get a development deal, and then. Yeah, you go on the whole ride. People thought that didn't happen anymore. Yeah, that was the Montre- that was the old Montreal. You know, right. in, in a, it parallels almost the late night set. Like back in the days when Johnny Carson put you on late night, it was it. If you got just for laughs, it was it. You get the five hundred thousand dollar development deal, and yeah, I was fortunate. I literally went to Montreal, got a development deal, shot my sitcom, and uh, it all happened like that, man. It was one thing led to another. I met with Bill Lawrence, who I shot the show with, 
Next thing I know, I'm in a room with NBC. I saw the show on the spot. Next thing I know, I'm casting my father, my parents, my, my brother. Next thing I know, I got a show that's aired, that's a, a shot and being considered for network. Well, let's back up. So that was eight years in. That was eight years in, yes. Eight years, so eight years before that, when you were starting, what did you think was going to happen? I hate. I could not stand. Uh, I could not stand uh, corporate life. What were you doing? So I ended up because I didn't like corporate work. I ended up working at nonprofits my whole career. Okay. I worked as a youth counselor for an organization called Liberty Leads, and I was at out of Bank Street College, and I helped kids get into college. Then I worked at a nonprofit law firm, and then I worked at a nonprofit um, IT company that outsourced digitization work to Cambodia, Laos, and Kenya. And that's a mouthful, but that's what I did. So I just didn't like, uh, and I just, and then it went from nonprofit to I don't like the routine of a day job. And I've always loved comedy, so I decided to give it a try. Did you know where to go? I started out, there was a, a place called the uh, Underground Comedy Lounge over on 108th and West, and like by Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And this guy named Jeff Cole okay. used to run the room. And I would bark for him. For this specific reason, Sean, I didn't want to bark at the clubs. I barked at an independent show because I thought if I barked at the clubs, they would always only see me as a barker for a long time and they would keep me there. So I said, I'm going to bark for this guy on the upper side where nobody knows me, nobody knows who I am. And when I got some material, then I'll go audition at the, uh, at the other venues. And that's what happened. How long did that take? I did that for about, I did it for about a year with him. And then I found out that there's other independent producer shows in New York. My friend Eric Rivera had a show at the New York Comedy Club. On, I think it was Saturday nights, and I would pop in there, and then that led to uh, independently produced shows at the comic strip, independently produced shows at, uh, at Stand Up New York, and then I got into the Ha Comedy Club circuit, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. <laughs> was a t was basically, It was a club in Times Square. The Ha Circuit. The Ha Circuit. <laughs> and uh, people have different opinions on it, but mm -hmm. the beauty of Ha was that you could do like seven shows in one night in that room. You didn't get paid, but you were, you know, you were rocking it. You, you just, didn't get paid, and it's mostly tourists. Tourist who trap. came in th from Barkers. Yes, from Barkers, and they were sailors, bachelorette parties, mm -hmm. proms, whatever it was. And weren't those kind of the Barkers who promised you would see big stars? At Dave Chappelle, shows? Chris Rock, and then you then they would sit down and they would see you know me, mm -hmm. and they they say this total disappointment on their faces. <laughs> so now, so now you gotta you gotta overcome the disappointment before you can get to your joke. Did you have a? Did you develop a, a routine for that specifically? Uh, nah, man, nah, man. I think. Uh, I was always, uh, I, I always, I always knew that, uh, I always knew that I was going to bomb initially. Mm -hmm. I just accepted that. Like, I'm going to eat it for a long time. I just, I just accepted it. And, uh, I was funny, but not to the point where I could carry a show with a bunch of drunk sailors. You know, I wasn't at that Bill, you know, Bill Burke can do that. And I, I still struggle with that sometimes. But, uh, I walked into it knowing I'm doing this to find what works. And I knew that guys like Mike DiStefano came out of that place. So I always use Mike DiStefano as my, kind of my go-to. I said, if Mike can get out of here with some great material, so can I. Okay. So thank God for Mike. You know, Mike DiStefano. His, his name always pops up because he was that good, you know that, that great of a guy. Right. And now, of course, you're hooked up with the guys from the stand. We have Mike DiStefano as their logo. Right. Um, and they're great guys. Shout out to Chris and Dave. And uh, When you were on the Haas circuit, were you also – I mean, you weren't earning any money yet. So I, how are you balancing – so I was fortunate enough, the last job I got was at a company called Digital Divide Data, and I had a boss named Jeremy Hockenstein. And Jeremy allowed me to work part-time, uh, and I was fortunate enough to have health insurance. I was able to work from home sometimes. 
So if I stayed out late moonlighting, I would just hit Jeremy, like, hey, Jeremy, stayed out late doing sets. He would say, hey, just work from home today. And I was with him for about, I think, five, six years, grinding it, making money. And it was due to his help that I was able to kind of find the space to not burn the candle at both ends. During that whole period, uh, you mentioned having being known for your dad material and your mom material. What did they think uh, of your American dream? My father loves it, man. My father but, loves it. But did he love it then? Yeah, he loved it from the beginning. My father's kind of, uh, he's lovingly apathetic. So that's the irony about my dad. My dad is kind of like, if you're dating somebody, he has no opinions on it. Mm-hmm. You like it? All right, cool. If you're wanting to get a job, he's apathetic. His only, his only thing in life is like, are you fed? Are you clothed? And are you healthy? Past that, he, my father can give two, two cents. Those that's are three true. priorities. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have two brothers. Older or younger? Older or younger. I'm a middle child. Okay. And he's the same with all of them? Yeah, just pretty much kind of like, kind of like, a, um, he's almost like a roommate slash warden. Like, it's his place. Like, mm-hmm. like, don't get me wrong. My father's the dictator of the house, but he's cool about it. You know, so like, if you, if you were to offend the, the dictator in most countries, they'd probably, you know, turn you into like a detention center. My father's kind of guy like, you know, uh, don't do that again and we'll be fine. And uh, just find something else to do. And that's, that's the, literally the talk. Okay. He's that. He's very chill. He's just chill. So whether you were doing nonprofits or stand-up comedy, no, he was cool. I think Sean, the conversation about dreaming is somehow inherently tied to the millennial generation. My father's generation was get here, get a job, raise a family. This whole conversation about passion, right? That doesn't exist with my dad. You won't find my dad talking about the existential crisis of meaning. <laughs> You know, that doesn't, that doesn't, he won't talk to you about Camus and nihilism. That's not going to happen. My father's like, we're here, we're eating. In some ways, he's kind of like a Buddhist. He's like a, he's like a, a weird uh, working class Buddhist. He's like, uh, your bowels are moving. You can see, you can hear, you're in good health. What more do you want? It's almost like a, it's like a grumpy, it's a, it's a grumpy gr- uh, gratitude. Working with all those nonprofits before you started comedy, did that give you a different perspective on what you wanted to talk about or? Or how you talked about it? You know what's crazy about this, Sean? Like the nonprofit circuit, I say like it was like a circuit. Yeah. Taught me about business, oddly enough. Uh, it taught me about, because uh, I, I used to file the taxes for my, the nonprofit. Okay. I did IT work, but also did like executive assistant stuff. So I had to file like the 990s. And it was a startup. My, my friend, uh, my boss, Jeremy, started it. He was an entrepreneur. So I saw him literally what it took to organize a business, which I ended up doing. You incorporate. You got to file your taxes, uh, mailings, newsletters. Uh, he would have to go out and get donations because it was a nonprofit. So networking. So from that, I took all what I learned from him, and I still do it. I just put it over into comedy. What apps to use. Jeremy used to have this thing where he would say, it's called Tools for, Li- Tools for Living. And he would sit the staff down. He would pick a topic to talk about, retirement, uh, tech apps. And he would tell us about index funds. Like, don't, don't put your money in the market. And, like, just don't pick stocks. Buy index funds. And all that I learned, I put into my business, you know, like just how to pick the best flights, uh, you know, how to, how to, uh, what, what are the best credit cards to get? Jeremy was real big on credit card points. So he would look at online mm-hmm. for which credit card had the best point reward for the initial sign up. He would say, Vlad, the Chase Sapphire card right now, 50,000 points for the first thousand dollars you spend in three months, go get it. And I get that card and I will get the 50,000 points and I'll use that to fly to gigs. So little things like that, that he taught me and ended up incorporating into how I run my business. Very nice. Yeah. At what point did you did your business become profitable? Your comedy business. When I when I got my pilot, 
Um, okay, so not until after New Faces. I literally quit when I had to shoot the pilot. So I wrote the script with Bill Lawrence. NBC picked it up. That January, I called Jeremy and said, hey, I got go to I gotta go to Los Angeles to shoot my pilot. I don't mind working remotely, but chances are I'm not going to be able to do a good job about it. And he was like, hey, you have my blessing. Okay. And then with that influx of capital and the, the, the exposure I got, I was able to, one, uh, pay my bills, and two, I was able to get more gigs because of that one opportunity. But before that, you had to get new faces to get seen. Correct. How many times did you audition? That was my third year. I auditioned okay. two years uh, for Jeff Singer. First year didn't get it. Uh, second year didn't get it. Third year I got it. Did you know that third year you were gonna get it? I crushed at Stand Up New York. It was me, Leonard Roots. Um, trying to think who else was in that lineup that year in that 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 showcase. And uh, it was one of the hardest sets that I did. You know, like I I nailed it. I hit all my notes. I I feel like I picked the original material. Um, and I got the call that I got it. You know, and I was happy with the way I got. it. I was like, oh, I definitely crushed and I deserve. I feel like I deserved it. When you were heading up to Montreal, so did you fly? Did you drive? I flew, man. I heard of comics like driving. Listen, torture. I, I can't sit down for more like, you know, that five-hour trip stuff. I told Chris and Dave, my manager, I was like, we're flying, dude. And they were shocked. They were happy. They're like, we're flying this year? You know what I mean? <laughs> we're flying? Because <laughs> they'd have to drive and go through the border. That right. whole nonsense. They're like, no, dude, we're flying. And I had points because of Jeremy. So I'd use my points. I got to Montreal. We went in like bucks, mm-hmm. like real bucks. Went through uh, immigration like like you know like like executives do, right. and we went in there. We got the hour and a half. We had time to eat lunch and hang out. How nervous were you before that first showcase? I mean, you talked about how you know as a new face, you only get the two, two slots, slots guaranteed. Yeah. So, what was your thinking before that first? Uh, my thinking was, um, I just have to, uh, uh, I just have to do what I practiced. Mm-hmm. I got to be a nice guy. I got to say hi to everybody. I got to remember people's names. Those are things I focused on. So that's all the offstage stuff. All the offstage stuff. Saying hi to people, inviting people to come see my show, um, knowing who the agents were, and uh, really trusting Chris and Dave, my managers, like not overstepping what I needed to do. So if I saw an agent, I would just refer them to Chris and Dave. You know, Luckily, I was in the management section of the New Faces. But I think for me, uh, they also prepped me pretty well. They let me know that the New Faces show is... He- Chris and Dave Chris or and Dave. the... Chris and Dave told me that it's very industry heavy, so you may not get the laughs you expect, and that is no indication of how well you're doing. So I went, and I I had to open up the show. Alonzo Bowden was hosting, and I opened up, and the laughs just weren't what I thought they were going to be. And I walk out, I go to Chris and Dave, I go, listen, I'm not going to tell anybody else this, but I feel like I didn't really nail it this time, the way I did at the showcase in New York. And they were like, don't worry about it, the conversation's going to happen. And sure enough, conversations were happening. And like they say in Hollywood, no news is good news. Hmm. So I didn't hear anything. And then fast forward, Chris is like, hey, Warner Brothers wants to meet with you. You know, so there's this perception among comics that like I got to kill in order to, to, right. to do well. And that's not the case at all. You know? Although you did get that gala that was then taped. I was the only one to get the, Yeah, I got, I got the gala that year. which they, they reserved one spot every year, but I was the only... I think uh, I was the only new face to get it that year. And um, with Hyam Mandel... And on the TV show, they they film Howie Mandel giving you this big speech yes. after your set, saying, "I witnessed history." Yeah. <laughs> in that in that moment, you know you're on camera. Do you think that this is all a big smokescreen, and Howie's just playing to the camera, or or, or did you feel Let he me, was sincerely? I'll tell you how oblivious I was. I kn- I knew Howie to be a germaphobe, mm-hmm. and. I was eating a carrot, and I was so caught off guard, I forgot he was a germaphobe, and I, I, w- and I went in for a hug. And he hugged me. I said, hey, can I get a hug? Yeah. 
And when I look back on it, I was like, I don't even remember asking Howie Mandel to give me a hug. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That is like Howie is, stri- you know, Howie's very about like keeping himself protected and clean and and germ free. Right. And he gave me a hug. And when I walked out, that's what that's what special about that moment to me. That that was a sign that I actually did well. That he wasn't just doing it for the cameras. The fact that he hugged me said to me he r- genuinely enjoyed my set. This wasn't some TV stuff that they wanted for the cameras. Mm-hmm. This guy hugged a dude full of germs, <laughs> and he did it honestly. And that, that to me, that's to me, that's the priceless moment of that clip. Okay. Yeah, him hugging me. And then how long after that did Warner Brothers come calling? Uh, Montreal was in July. It's always yeah. in July, right? I had my first development meeting with Warner Brothers in August. So pretty quick. Pretty quick. And then we pitched to, we pitched to NBC in October. And how did you get matched up with Bill Lawrence? So basically, Bill Lawrence had an overall deal with Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman by the name of Jana Steele in uh, Montreal who saw me. And Jana was in the development team at Warner Brothers. They had the conversation amongst their team. And then Liza Katzer, who was Bill's development executive, saw me as well. So Liza and Jana said, hey, this is a good pick. And Liza was a huge champion as well. Liza said, I really like Vlad. And she's the one that kind of brought me to Bill. And Liza does a good job of catering comedy to him, like kind of being his eyes and ears. And then she brought me to Bill. Bill loved me. The development team loved me. And then Peter Roth, the head of the studio, loved me. And then from there, we just took off to NBC. Hmm. Did you know much about Bill's track record? You know, I, I, uh, I saw all his shows, but I didn't, know, I didn't know he was the guy behind them. Okay. I saw Scrubs. I would watch Scrubs when I would come home late at night. They would rerun it. I saw Spin City. I saw Cougar Town. Uh, I saw some of Ground Floor. I saw some of uh, Survive. I saw the trailer for Surviving Jack, and I always wondered what happened to that show. And it was all Bill Lawrence. And then you know, Dave says to me, "Hey, Bill Lawrence wants to work with you." I was like, "Who?" And then I looked him up, and I was like, "Oh my God, the Bill Lawrence." Mm-hmm. And then I met him, and just a great guy and an expert salesman. And at the time, he was still working on Undateable. He was working on Undateable. They were doing it live. I think it was season three. And uh, so he was used to working with standups. Yeah, he had done uh, he had done Undateable live. Ground Floor had Roy, Roy, Roy Scoville, mm-hmm. um, and he did a couple other shows with Stamps. I'm trying to remember. He developed a few other shows with Stamps. He did one with Tommy Johnigan that didn't get picked up. Okay. How how important was it to have a guy like Bill Lawrence, though, who's had successful shows, but then also been through the development process with so many other comedians, to be able to help you your first time through? Bill was instrumental in letting me understand that this may not happen. There was a natural... Uh, it was an inherent cynicism in the way he works. So he was like, this may not happen. We're going to put our best foot forward. Um, I'm a gorilla in this business, but there's still no guarantee that we'll get where we need to go, which is to get the pilot on the air. And uh, he was totally honest about that. And he took a heavy hit that year because not only did my show not get picked up, Undateable got canceled. And that, to me, was a wake-up call because I was like, my show got, didn't get picked up, but this guy who's been in the business for this long just got a show canceled. And, and that's when it hit me that this is a never-ending process, similar to Joan Rivers in her documentary when she said, you need dates on the calendar? Yeah, white piece is, of work, yeah. White is the worst thing. And that's when it hit me, like, if Bill Lawrence is, is – he was crushed. You know, he was, like, he, was, he was reasonably disappointed. And that was a huge lesson for me because he's – Bill is very well off. And you could tell that this really bummed him out. He put his heart and soul into my project. His show got canceled. And it was like, man, this is just like – this is the business. It's raw. It's it's a high and then it's a it's just a a low. And you had moved out there part time or full time? I moved out there full time. So full time. So you moved out there full time. You think you might have a, a show in prime time? Yeah. And then it's gone. Then it's gone. Totally gone, man. And uh, 
you know, we tried to we tried to resell it. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. And then uh, we're working on redeveloping it now with another company. Try to figure that out. Um, so I go to I go to I had a gig at Crackers when the show when I found in Indianapolis show, in Indianapolis when the show got canceled. This is to tell you how great comedy is. Uh, you go from Hollywood to Indianapolis, and I'm crushed. And uh, this is why I love Dave and Chris so much. They literally flew to Indianapolis to be with me that weekend because uh, they knew I was devastated. And uh, you know, we processed the loss. And we talked about next steps, and uh, it took a while. You know, I had to. I had to. Uh, I remember I was off. I was offered to audition for this role in a multicam, and I was like, I'm not even doing it. Like, I just, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't a straight offer. I had to audition, but it was a good project. And I just packed. Cause, like, the thought of doing somebody else's multicam was just like, couldn't process it. I was so hurt by the whole thing. Did that show end up going? Yeah, it was. It was disjointed. Okay. And uh, they wanted me to read for the the kid playing uh, Kathy Bates's son. Uh, no guarantee I would have got it, mm-hmm. but it was a Warner Brothers show. Right. They just did a great pilot with me. Hey, maybe there's a shot here. And I told Chris, I was like, I just can't. If I got that part and I, and I got it, and I'd, I'd be like sick to my stomach. You know, that's how bitter I was at the universe. Mm. <laughs> I was like, What did it take for that bitterness to finally relieve itself? I started to realize that uh, I started having conversations with other people in the industry, and I realized that I was one of the few people that thread the needle. To get a show even shot to pilot, to be the lead on it, to be number one on the call sheet, to be a producer on it, to take that and be in the Writers Guild is almost close to impossible. That's when it hit me. I was like, oh, this is like a shot in the dark. And I I did it at the highest level. And everybody loved me. I then got signed to one of the biggest agencies. I went to William Morris after that. And I said to myself, wow, I, I accomplished something, something really, truly remarkable. And I was having conversations with showrunners and, and producers now and writers. I, went in, I was in a whole new uh, network now. And it was legitimate. I was talking to people that couldn't get shows bought that season. They would, you know, established showrunners. Hey, mm-hmm. I tried to pitch to NBC. They, they wouldn't take it. I was like, I just sold a show to these. And these guys, right. like, experienced guys can't get a show picked, you know, uh, sold. And when that hit me, I was like, oh, I got, a, I got something here. I got something ahead of me. I got a good future ahead of me here. I was got to put my head in the dirt and just be a good guy and, and write. And you said you're still... Working with Bill on redevelopment? No, no. Uh, Bill, Bill, Bill since moved on. Okay. We're, still, we're still amazing friends. I see him at the gym. Um, that's also a good sign you're still cool with somebody. I mean, you can see him at the gym and say hi and talk mm-hmm. for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> if any projects come up, I can always send Bill pages. Like, hey, Bill, take a look at this. And mm-hmm. Bill's always kind enough to look at it. Anytime I need advice, I call Bill up. Uh, Jeff Ingold is also there, a great guy. Um, so now, we're, you know, through Chris and Dave and other people, we're working on finding a home for it. Elsewhere. Okay. So what's next for you? Uh I want to sell a show. Mm-hmm. I have two shows that I'm working on right now that I'm trying to sell. Uh, acting. I just did a role in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I just booked another show that I can't announce yet because they have like non-disclosure agreements. Um, I did Late Night on Jimmy Kimmel. And I just did the HBO Entre Nos. So I think for me right now, the thing is to sell, to try to sell my two shows that I'm working on and then to uh, get more road work. How much time on the road are you spending right now? Uh, the summer was good. Um... I'm doing I'm doing uh, Zanies next next week, the week after next. Uh, so I would say it's been about twice a month, once a month, you know, tw- which is which is good. Too much is no good. Too little is not not great either. So it's like I'm right in, I'm right in the pocket. How does it feel coming back to New York? Uh, it, it hasn't been that long, but man, I would say this. LA, when you go to Hollywood, and then like you say, you thread the needle like yeah. that. You come into some money, you, have, you start wearing nice yeah. jackets. <laughs> you saw that, Sean. Huh? You like that jacket. <laughs> and then you come back here, suddenly, you know, we're just an avenue away from Times Square and Ha, but you're, far, but you're so far away from the Ha circuit. Yeah. 
in, LA, in just a few years. And shout out to the hot circuit because you know that was that was right. a huge blessing at the time because they got me the stage time. Uh, LA has car traffic. New York has people traffic. And I find myself that I'm so much more sensitive to people traffic now. The subway, the Starbucks, everything is just crowded. And uh, I love coming here for the stand-up, seeing my family, seeing the mm-hmm. people I love. But outside of that, man, like, L.A.'s great. <laughs> L.A. is great, dude. L.A.'s great. So much space. The weather's fantastic. I read so much more. I'm a reader now. I got a Kindle. <laughs> you know what I mean? I read, I read like two, a book, book or two a week. I'm killing it. Do you feel any, any pressure to, to maintain yourself as part of the L.A. comedy scene? I would say that uh, I always tell comics this movie, like coming to L.A., mm-hmm. every comic says, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to be aggressive, I'm going to get all the spots. It's not going to happen, dude. L.A. is a scene similar to New York. You got to do your time. You got to network. You have to embed yourself. It's a transition period. I'm just starting out to get spots at the Laugh Factory. I get improv once in a while. I play a lot at the Comedy Magic Club. I do the Ice House occasionally. Flappers once in a while. The spots in L.A., I, a good week is three, three times a week, Sean, two, three times a week. Mm-hmm. New York, you're doing four or five a night, you know, and I always tell people like, yeah, but I was born in New York and I did it for eight years here. So it makes sense that I would get all those spots. You go to L.A., you got to you got to pay the dues. You got to spend seven, eight years, whatever it is, unless you get a big showing, they can put you up at the comedy store. Um, But I walked in there knowing that I said, I have to respect the fact that these guys are hustling to get their stage time. And it's 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 my it's a privilege for me to, to, to them for them to invite me into their circle. That's how I see it to this day. But I always tell guys, you got to be very patient. Don't go out there with that expectation. Like, I'm going to get up there, you know, four nights a week. You got to see how your gas is, and, you know, and you're trying to find parking. Other than seeing um, your former showrunner at the gym, are there other people who are really good out in L.A. to kind of lean on for advice? Oh, Ron Funches, uh, Tone Bell, uh, Jeff Ingold, uh, uh, so many guys out there. Reggie Watts has been uh, great. Um the development people at Warner Brothers, the creatives at NBC have been also super nice. What's what's the best advice they've given you so far? Uh, I think the best advice they've given me was telling me how much they believed in my project, despite the fact that it didn't go. And that to me was, uh, I internalized that. I internalized the fact that, yeah, the, the show not getting picked up is no reflection on my talent. The show getting to pilot is a huge reflection of my talent. And that was the best thing they gave me because I was like, oh, I can survive. I can actually survive here and get and keep getting work. So on the flip side, an aspiring comic comes up to you after one of these panels or screenings and says, "Hey, I'm just getting started. What do I do?" Uh, What's the first thing you tell them? That's one of the hardest questions to, to answer, Sean, right. because the hack, the the cliche answer is, "Oh, keep getting up" and all that other jazz. You know, there's something called survivorship bias. We only look at the people that make it. But there's more people that don't make it than make it. Same goes for, for stocks. Same goes for basketball. Uh, you know, so this is not guaranteed. I'm not guaranteed right now. And I try to tell people that. I tell people, like, it's a lifestyle. It's not a hobby. It's not a – it's, it's a waking up at a certain time. It's going to bed at a certain time. It's hanging out at the clubs. And it's a scary thought because you may not make it. You may not make – I mean, Sean, I'm sure you know a bunch of comics that – since you've been a fan of comedy and since you've been writing about comedy, I'm sure you've seen this, guys that had that spark and then they, f- they forgot about him. You know, the guys that had the 500,000 development deal and didn't... For every Kevin Hart, there's how many guys that end up being just road, road guys. Right. You know, and I think that's the... To make a living off comedy, to be able to pay your bills, there's some great comics making six-figure incomes on the road. To do that is in itself an achievement. To be, I know a lot of great comics that are just raising a family and they're great. Or guys that are just doing comedy, like, you know... That you wouldn't even know about. 
guys that show up at the Comedy Magic Club. You know, there's guys like Mario Joyner. You don't know him unless you go to a Chris Rock show. <laughs> and Mario Joyner is one of the funniest dudes alive. And he's fantastic. Or you're old enough to remember when he hosted MTV. Correct. Or, or, or when, when he was on that movie hanging with the homeboys. But he's had a great career. And these young guys wouldn't even know who he is. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the nicest guys. So would you say that you're kind of half your father in terms of not not feeling any kind of worry about where your career is going and then half kind of learning all this business stuff and being like, well, I, I got this part down at least. Yeah. I think... Uh, grumpy gratitude? Grumpy gratitude. <laughs> of, you know, a tragic optimism. You know, um, I don't know, man. I just feel like we're getting spiritual now. Like, you know, you don't know where things are going to end up and you just hope that that uh, you can persevere and uh, you hope that your your funny stays. That's the biggest fear we all have. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lose my funny. You know, was that late night set good enough? You know, um, and then I try to just stay inspired. Like, I try to watch Sebastian Maniscalco, Brian Regan. Those guys are my heroes, you know. Um, Greer Barnes at the cellar, pop in, watch him once in a while. That's always good to do, too, like, to re- to remind yourself why you love comedy and just laugh. You know, J.B. Smoove, mm-hmm. uh, Larry David, you know, you're feeling like shit. You just put a Larry David, you know, thing on, and, and you're laughing again, and you're like, this is why. You watch little Mel Brooks. You know, I just finished, I just finished, finished reading Judd Apatow's book, and that was a great book. Um, Sick in the Head? Sick in the Head. Just him interviewing these comics mm-hmm. and how generous the comics were to him, him being a young guy. And then what's great now, too, is to watch these old comics come back because of Netflix, to watch Jerry do his hour, to watch, you know, to hear about uh, Kevin James getting a deal. Brian Regan's going to do his hour. It's coming out, I think, like, November. Right. And it's like, oh, comedy is vibrant. There's a, there's a home for this. Sarah Silverman's still working, you know, and she looks like she's 20. <laughs> so all the positive signs are there. What, what does success look like to you? I would like to be a showrunner one day. I'd like to, uh, after doing stand-up and acting and maybe selling and developing my own shows, I'd like to help other people out. I would like to be a Bill Lawrence, where I take a young writer or a young comic, a young inspiring talent, and develop a show with them and, and craft a story that works for television. Well, I hope we get to see your TV show first. Absolutely. That's, that's, the, that's the first thing, man. <laughs> I want to I tell, tell my story. I want to bring the Bronx on the map. Well, uh, I'm glad I can share at least a little bit of it right now. Yeah. And Sean, thank you for your work, man. Thank you for your commitment. I always go to your website. And uh, I'm finally, it's so great to be able to talk to you finally. Oh, it was completely my pleasure. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Lon. Thank you. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.